Our teaching today comes from Matthew chapter 11. We're going to take a look at verses 16 through 24 under the theme of perfectly fair judgment. And here we read Jesus saying, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you, but you did not dance. And we sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is God's word. In my opinion, arguably, Matthew chapter 11 might be the best spot in the Bible to go to explain the nature of human unbelief. And part of the reason for that is because we see John the Baptist at the beginning of the chapter becoming imprisoned for doing the right thing. He gets imprisoned for carrying out his ministry faithfully, effectively, all of that. He gets thrown in prison. And as he's rotting away in prison, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You got to keep in mind, this is John the Baptist. This is the guy who baptized Jesus and the heavens opened and the Spirit came down upon him and God affirmed, God the Father affirmed that this is his son. This is the guy that in a couple of verses, Jesus is going to go on to say, up until this point in human history, there has never been a single person born of woman who is better than this guy. And in this moment, when he's riding away in prison, he is expressing spiritual doubts. Isn't that crazy? Maybe the most faithful guy to ever walk the planet prior to Jesus is right now expressing spiritual doubts about Jesus. I, at a former congregation, was leading through a Bible study on this particular text, and a guy that I would consider arguably the most, like, spiritually mature guy in the whole congregation, at one point raised his hand and said, I don't get it. How can this be? Like John the Baptist? John the Baptist is doubting here. What that tells us, and it's admittedly a little disconcerting to see a guy who is so spiritually mature expressing doubts, but that just tells you how disconcerting Jesus' operations, God's operations, were to John the Baptist. And so today what we're doing is we're looking at the nature of unbelief. And we're also looking at the unfortunate spiritual impulse that we all have to question a holy God. We're going to say, why is that? Okay? It's not necessarily what you might think. The three points that we're going to break it into are these. In the opening verses, 16 and 19, we're going to talk about a childish attempt at control. The last verses, 20 to 24, we'll look at a carefully calculated divine judgment. And then right in the middle, it almost seems like a non sequitur, but Jesus nestles in this fascinating little proverb uh, about a wise child of God. 
So, a childish attempt at control, a carefully calculated divine judgment, and the wise child of God. First of all, a childish attempt at control. Let me remind you what Jesus said here at the beginning. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others, and he proceeds to go on to describe children as, he's really describing adults acting like petulant, fickle, impossible to please little kids. Now, make, let's make a clear distinction here. Childlike faith in the Bible is actually a really good thing. Childlike faith where you understand yourself to be a child and God as like the parent, humbly, that's a good thing. On the other hand, childish faith where you demand your autonomy and you throw temper tantrums every time you don't have the perceived control over your life that you think you deserve or that you think you need to have in order to be happy. That's childish faith. That's a bad thing. And what Jesus is describing here is he says, adults, humans in general, act often like kids playing games in the marketplace. And the games that he describes are a little bit odd to us, admittedly. He, uh, he describes children playing the games, two games, wedding and funeral. They're playing make-believe. Um, you got to bear in mind that those are the most dramatic events that children in that day would have routinely seen in their lives, weddings and funerals. Children today still play make-believe Maybe not wedding and funeral, but they still play make-believe. In fact, I would go as far as to say, you know what video games are? Generally speaking, they're kids who have an avatar that they are controlling in a fictional environment, and they are trying to win by gaining dominance and control over that environment. Winning is essentially functioning as the god of a fictive environment. You know what that is? That's playing make-believe, right? Kids always, that's what kids do. They play make-believe. And what Jesus is doing is he's describing kids, uh, he's describing adults as kids trying to gain control over their environments, but it's as though they're delusional and playing make-believe. Now, specifically what he says here is it's like, what if one kid plays the pipe and the other kid, so the pipe is something that you play like during a wedding at that time. It's, it's uh, festive music. It's music that you get up and dance to. That's what happens at wedding music, Right? But we played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. And we thought, okay, well, you apparently don't want to play that game. Fine, we'll play a different game. We'll play funeral. That's the other option. So we sang a dirge. That's what you sing at funerals. We sang a dirge for you, but you didn't mourn. Those are the only two options. We tried to get you to play wedding. You didn't want to do it. We tried to get you to play funeral. You didn't want to do it. At some point in time, it becomes very clear. It's not about the games that they're playing. It's about that the kids, the other kids, want to be the ones who make the music. You see, it's a control issue. It's a pride issue. They want to be in charge. You can almost picture little kids, one of them trying to like grab the pipe and say, give me that. I want to be the leader, right? Jesus says, spiritually speaking, that's what every human is like. When you don't have the control that you think you should have in life, you start to throw temper tantrums. Now, specifically the context in which, in the backdrop in which he's teaching this, is he's talking about the ministries of John the Baptist and his own ministry. And John the Baptist, you remember, was this guy who, he was, in some respects, socially, uh, like, oddly ascetic. He wore weird clothes, and he ate weird food, and he lived in the wilderness, and everything he does, did, it wasn't worldly at all. It was just kind of weird, to such a degree that the Jewish leaders, who they didn't like him or his message or his condemnation of their ministry. And so what did they say? The text says, they said he had a demon. He's too, he can't be from God. He's too weird. Can't be from God. 
So, okay, fine. You don't like John the Baptist. Jesus comes on a completely different path. He's almost absurdly normal. He eats with sinners. He eats with the tax collectors. He eats with the prostitutes. But he also has a message that is very influential socially and is condemning of the Jewish leaders. And what do the Jewish leaders say at that point? Well, he can't be from God. He's too normal. He's too worldly. You see, their complaints are totally contradictory. That guy can't be from God. He's too weird. That guy can't be from God. He's too worldly. At some point in time, you get the idea. Their problem with John the Baptist is not about John the Baptist. Their problem with Jesus is not about Jesus. Their problem is they have huge egos, and they want to be the ones that make the music. Their problem is that they want to be in charge and have control over life. Uh, They are like little kids in the marketplace throwing a fit because they're not getting their things their way. See, it isn't about, it's not about Jesus' music and it's not about John the Baptist's music. The problem is it's God's music and they prefer their own music. They are impossible to please because they would desire what is impossible, which is to function as the God of their own lives. I can't imagine what a miserable place this world would be if God entrusted the care of the entire universe and the control and power of the entire universe into the hands of a child like me. So I want to challenge you and start making applications today. The things that irritate you in life, that you feel like you don't have enough control over and you wish it was different, the things that irritate you, is it really the thing or is this a deeper spiritual issue for you? You know, like, so you're irritated, maybe with life, maybe with it's everybody else's fault, maybe with God. Uh, I don't, I'm tired of being single. I'm upset that my relationship didn't work out the way I hoped it would. I'm upset that my kids aren't turning out the way that I hoped they would. I'm upset that people don't appreciate me for all the hard stuff that I do. I'm upset that I don't get paid what I think I deserve to be paid for as hard as I work. I'm upset that uh, my particular spiritual or sexual appetite, let's say, is, is clearly contradicts what God has revealed to be his design for human sexuality. It feels unfair. I get it. It feels, it feels unfair. Uh, but let me remind you, there's this really like insightful saying in addiction recovery that says, you know, your best thinking got you here. So like, You did what you did, you always do what you do, because in the moment, it feels like the right thing to do. You think it's the right thing to do, and you landed in recovery. How's that working out for you? How much should you trust your thoughts, your feelings, your fallen human instincts? Arguably, the single worst instinct that fallen humans have is to attempt to grasp control over what God alone should have, okay? Most of your irritation in life comes from the fact that you're trying to grab control of things that God alone is supposed to have control over. Brings me to the second point. A carefully calculated divine judgment. So in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is teaching about unbelief in this chapter. It's worth reminding ourselves, unbelief isn't actually the absence of a certain belief. It's the presence of a different belief that you perceive to be more reliable more credible, more beautiful, okay? Unbelief, it's like a paradigm shift. Unbelief is not the absence of a belief. It's the presence of a different belief that you hold as more sacred, more beautiful, more reliable, more credible. So for instance, I am an unbeliever of every other world religion. You know that? I'm an unbeliever of every other world religion other than Christianity. 
because I believe that Christianity is more reliable, more credible, and more beautiful. Um, someone who is not religiously affiliated, who doesn't identify, in fact, so if you are roughly my age or under, millennial or Gen Z, if you're Gen Z, there are going to be more people within 20 years who identify as not religiously affiliated than identify as Christian. What that means is they're saying, I put my trust, I have faith, I put my faith in my own personal ability to navigate life more than I do the group think, more than I do a body of other people out there. Similarly, the little kids that Jesus is referencing earlier on in the text, remember, they refused to dance, they refused to mourn, they refused to do what the other kids wanted them to do. And it really wasn't because of the music itself, it was because they wanted to be in control. They, I wanted to get my own way. That's what it was. It's a pride issue, it's a self-control issue. What I'm saying then is, our beliefs come from a variety of different factors and contributions. You know what the study of belief is called? Big word here. Epistemology. You know what epistemology is? It's why we believe what we believe. It comes from the Greek word pistis, which means faith. Why we believe what we believe. And I'll tell you what, there's probably nothing in life that is simultaneously as fascinating and as deflating to me is discussing with people why they feel what they feel, why they think what they think, why they believe what they believe. Because almost invariably, when I ask people about those things, they are 100% convinced that they believe what they believe and they feel what they feel. Why? Because they have rationally come to certain conclusions. They've thought things through very carefully and they've arrived at these wise conclusions. Now, first of all, you know what the problem with that is? If you think that you believe what you believe because you've just thought your way into it, how are you going to feel about everybody else who believes something different? See, if you got where you got because you thought your way there, then everybody who's not there and has a different conviction, they must, by definition, be either less intelligent than you, or at the very least, they haven't thought things through as clearly as you, which means you're going to constantly treat them with a condescending attitude. Why? Because we live in a culture that thinks we believe what we believe simply because we've come to rational, unbiased, carefully thought through conclusions on things. In reality, you know what our thinking is? The way we think is what we're trying to do is we're lawyering to ourselves to try to reconcile the dissonance between what we desire and our conviction, our desires and our beliefs. So we sort of flatter ourselves into thinking that we believe what we believe because we've just weighed all the possible evidence in front of us and we carefully calculated it and we've come to these thoughtful, unbiased conclusions. But I am overwhelmingly disappointed at the human inability to reason apart from ego and bias. There's a thousand examples I can give. I'm going to give you one and I promise I have zero specific person in mind here. I just don't know how many times I can talk to a parent about their child, and they are completely unconvinced that their child has done something, despite the preponderance of evidence in front of them. And they're like, you know, little Billy would never do something like that. Little Billy's a good kid. And I'm like, well, except that he's got blood on his hands, and uh, there's witnesses to what he did, and he confessed, but you've already ruled out the thing that you don't desire to be true. And sometimes truth is traumatic enough that we would rather live blind than see the evidence right in front of our faces. That's a pride issue. 
It's an ability to control the narrative of our lives, and Jesus is calling us to repentance over it in this text. He says those who do not repent of trying to control, to try to function as the God of their lives, will eventually face judgment. And I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but the specific instance that he gives here is he talks about some of the cities that were the cities he ministered to a lot in his Galilean ministry, Bethsaida, Chorazin, uh, and Capernaum. And what does he say to them? He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. And then he goes on to say, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you're going to go down to Hades. These are three cities located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus conducted not just a lot of his gospel ministry, but performed a lot of miracles in. And what he's saying is there is sufficient evidence for you to have repented and believed and put your trust in Jesus to avoid judgment. And what he says is, actually, if other cities, cities that the the Jewish people would have considered notoriously wicked in ancient times, so Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, you know what he says about this? He says, if the miracles that were performed amongst you would have been performed amongst them, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What is he saying? You guys have been given sufficient evidence to repent and avoid judgment. Now, one of the things this begs the question is, if, if Tyre and Sidon and Sodom would have repented had Jesus given them more information, like more evidence, why didn't God give Tyre and Sidon and Sodom more information, more evidence? That's presuming to know something we can't know. God doesn't tell us. The only thing that Jesus does tell us for sure is that these particular cities, they are going to be judged more harshly than those cities because they were given more opportunity, more evidence, more grace. And that strikes us as perfectly fair because we all get, with great power comes great responsibility, with great privilege comes higher standards. These cities should absolutely be judged more harshly than the other ones because they were given more. Now, it's also, if you wanna think of this in real sober terms, How much grace and opportunity and evidence have you and I been given? Like, oh my goodness. To live in a place of historically unprecedented gospel freedom, gospel access, God's goodness and prosperity, what should God rightfully expect of us? But the point here, Jesus' point is sufficient evidence wasn't enough to force the unbelievers in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum to believe Why? Because evidence is only a part of belief. When you talk to people about what they believe, they always think it's entirely based on evidence. No, it is not. Unbelief is not primarily a lack of evidence. It's the presence of something anti-Jesus that exists in every human heart. Okay? Can I explain this? This, again, is one of those kind of paradigm shifts. Unbelief in life is not due to a lack of evidence. Unbelief is due to the presence of an anti-Jesus force that exists in every human heart. We all have a sin nature that fears and hates and resists the message of Jesus. We all have a anti-gospel stubbornness. Let me give you two quick examples so you know Pastor Hine isn't just making this thing up. Two quick biblical examples, okay? One of them is right after Jesus' resurrection. Right after Jesus' resurrection, you know what he tells his disciples to do? He says, uh, tell them to go up to Galilee and I will meet them. And what we're told here at a little later in Matthew's gospel is, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What are you talking about, some doubted? 
After Jesus' resurrection, they literally seemingly laid their hands on a resurrected Savior, but I'm still, you know, I'm not quite sure. Why? Because unbelief is not the product of a lack of evidence. Unbelief is the product of a presence of an anti-Jesus bias in our hearts. Uh, Let me give you another example. Jesus tells a story in Luke 16, a rich man and poor Lazarus. A fascinating story where the rich man, after he goes down, he dies. He goes down into hell. And uh, he's, he's clearly miserable. And he has this fascinating little conversation with Abraham somehow. But he tells Abraham, the rich man is still delusional down in hell. And he's like, that Lazarus, that poor Lazarus that I ordered around on earth, I'm, he's still ordering him around, even though Lazarus is up in heaven. And he says, why don't you send Lazarus back to, I've got these five brothers on earth. And I do not want them to uh, experience the same fate as me, to know the horrors of hell that I'm going through. Why don't you send Lazarus back to them to warn them? And you know what Abraham says at that time? I'm paraphrasing him a little bit here, but here's what he says, basically. If they don't believe God's word, the Bible, they are not going to believe even if a dead person comes back to them to warn them. You know why? Because unbelief is not primarily a lack of evidence. Unbelief is primarily the presence of an anti Jesus bias that exists in every human heart. God is perfectly fair. In fact, he's better than fair. And God is perfectly good, and he's much better than good. And God has presented humanity with overwhelming evidence for his wisdom, his power, and his goodness. We do not ever disbelieve. We don't ever even disobey because the evidence from God's word is not clear enough. We disbelieve because we just want to dance to our own music. That's it. We want control, we want what we want, when we want it, and not even the God of the entire universe is going to stand in our way. And God says in the end, you know, that's what you choose. If you don't desire me and you don't like my music, I'll leave. But that's hell. Brings me to the final point, the wise child of God. So I am super thankful that my salvation my future welfare, and for that matter, my, even all my present welfare, is not at all contingent on my personal intelligent choices. I would be doomed if that was the case. Thank goodness it's based on God's gracious choices. But interestingly, if you talk to humans about the gospel of Jesus Christ, their flesh generally has one of two responses. Their best thoughts of flesh have one of two responses. You know what they are? Either when you tell people the gospel, and and by the way, the gospel means good news, but there's also a bad news attached to the gospel. You know what the bad news is for humanity, for flesh? The, The bad news of the gospel is that human beings are so broken, so inherently self centered, so wickedly sinful, that even the very best of us is not capable of meriting God's love, acceptance, and favor. And if you tell that to human beings, a lot of times their flesh will react, man, that's kind of negative. That is really, you know, that's harsh. Repentance and sinfulness and wickedness. and Oh, oh, that's very negative. And yet if I tell the exact same gospel message to a different person and I say, you know what? The threshold for salvation is not all that high. The threshold for forgiveness and eternal life from God is not all that high. The only thing you have to do is you have to repent of trying to function as the own God in your own lives. You have to turn to Jesus Christ and put trust in him and his completed work for your forgiveness and salvation. Just put your faith in him. You know what a lot of people in their flesh will say? That just sounds too easy. Like you're going to let anybody in? 
Do you understand how that's contradictory? Do you understand the discrepancy? So like, for instance, the idea that we are too sinful to save ourselves and that it requires nothing short of God's own son to die in our place for our sins, that's too harsh to some. But the idea that all of us, all we have to do for salvation is repent of our sins and turn to Christ. We don't have to do some great pilgrimage. We don't have to say a certain prayer X number of times. We don't have to do some kind of great work. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. To some people, that sounds too easy. Now, I'm telling you what, the same message, when you have people in the flesh who are saying, that's too pessimistic, that's too optimistic, that's too harsh, that's too easy, you know what it is? You know what it really is? It's not my music is what it is. That's all people are saying when they're saying those things. It's just, it's not, it's not the way I would do it. It's not my music. God's gracious music is absolutely alien to this world. Grace is alien to this world. God's son had to smuggle it into this world when he tore through the space-time continuum and straightjacketed himself into human flesh. And he lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross, and he died in our place, and he took that jacket of righteousness, and he wrapped it around us. And uh, again, there's a, there's a little proverb here in verse 19 that, again, almost seems like a non sequitur in the midst of what Jesus is teaching, but Jesus says this. He says, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And actually, if that doesn't sound quite right to you, it might be because you're more familiar with the parallel account in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is recorded as saying, wisdom is proved right by her, all her children. It's the exact same account. Now, there's always interesting textual questions when you see something recorded differently. Like, what did Jesus actually originally say? Um, he might have said both. It might have been, uh, it could be a scribal error, potentially, but we get the point. It's the same thing. What my suspicion is that the Spirit has given us the exact same point from two different angles for purposes of clarity. The point is, wisdom is being personified here, and the litmus test for genuine wisdom is what? The fruit, the deeds, the children, the results. The true chest test for our beliefs is the results. Why does God, why does Jesus have to teach us this proverb? Because humans will believe anything that sounds good. Humans are so naive, we will believe almost anything that is personally beneficial and sweet-sounding. And you know what our brains do at that point? The only thing our brains are good for at that point is they are weak enough. All they try to do is they reconcile our desires to our beliefs through logic. So what Jesus says is, you can't, you can't be naive enough to just believe everything that sounds good. Don't you realize that's exactly what Satan's doing all the time? What did Satan do to Jesus in the wilderness? All he did was whisper sweet-sounding nothings into his ear that sounded super nice to any human flesh. But what was the fruit of Satan's teaching? The fruit is, if Jesus had believed, it would have been separation from his heavenly Father. That is the fruit of Satan's teaching. That is the fruit of his lies. Fortunately, Jesus doesn't fall for him. Well, what's the result of Jesus' ministry? He goes to the cross. He lovingly forgives the very people who put him there. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. He did the most impossible thing against the scariest possible enemy. It proves he's smarter than you and me. So we should listen to him and submit to him. It means that if we're humble, we recognize that the Christian pathway from 
childishness and maturity is to acknowledge that I'm a child. It means that a Christian understands the problems that exist in this world are not primarily because we have the wrong administration in charge or we have poor education or we have bad economic policy or we have health care issues. Those are all potentially problems, but they're trickle-down problems. The problem a mature Christian understands is that I have death in my heart. Every human has sin trying to dominate their hearts. The problem is that we are all acting like kids, demanding our own music place get played in the marketplace, but the one adult in the room is the one who clearly conquered death. And Jesus didn't just conquer the grave, he voluntarily conquered the grave for us, which means he's not just powerful enough to save us, he's not just wise enough to help us, but he loves us enough to die in our place for our sins. His wisdom, his power, his grace are proven right by his deeds. So we dance as Christians to his music. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our flesh just wants to do its own thing. But our best thinking is what lands us addicted to a fallen world. We repent of thinking that we know better, and we praise you for not only knowing better than us, but paying for our destructive pride. May our humble lives of submission together honor your name, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.